0: So, there's a proverbial saying. Those who do not know history are destined to repeat it. Edmund Burke is uh, credited with it, but it's so general and so proverbial. Many people have said similar things. But those who don't know history are destined to make the same mistakes over and over again. I think this idea lies at the heart of Jude's message for the church. The Bible has a lot to say about remembering. Throughout the story of the Bible... We're told over and over again remember, remember, don't forget, don't forget the Lord's faithfulness, don't forget what He has done for you. A couple of different occasions, He tells the people of God to use rocks to remember what God has done. We have the Ebenezer from 1 Samuel. And we have the 12 stones of remembrance from just this past week in our Bible reading plan in the book of Joshua. They're told to take stones from the riverbed and carry them one per tribe into the promised land and to place them there, to set them up as a place of remembrance, to remember God's faithfulness. We're told to remember the goodness of God because we forget, but we're also told to remember our mistakes to learn from those who have gone before us so that we don't repeat the same mistakes. And in the New Testament letter of Jude, which we've just started this past week, this idea is crucial that we remember. And so he goes on this kind of tour where he pulls out all of these references, some of them a bit cryptic, many from the Old Testament, but also some other places in Scripture. And what Jude does in this short book, 25 verses, 461 words in the original language, and he basically squeezes seven three-point sermons in 25 verses. And so this week, uh, as I was preparing this sermon, I very quickly realized that this series should have been much more than three weeks long, uh, and that this middle sermon probably should have been two or three sermons at least. So I'm just letting you know up front that I'm going to leave a lot on the table. There are a lot of things in here that I don't have time to completely unpack, but I hope that we'll get the main idea and walk away uh, with some interest and intrigue in this book because it's very um, fascinating. And so Jude uh, is short for Judah or Judas. I want to just reorient us quickly. Many of you were out this past week because of spring break and other things. This letter was written uh, by Jude. who was a brother of Jesus. And he became a follower of Jesus, a servant of Jesus, after the resurrection. He becomes a kind of itinerant traveling teacher and evangelist. And he says at the beginning of the letter that he had planned to write a very encouraging message, a general word of encouragement to the church, explaining to them the truths of the gospel. And yet he has heard that there is a problem that has that has come about in this church or this group of churches that he's writing to, that he doesn't tell us who they are. But he's learned that there are false teachers who have infiltrated their church. They're within the church. They've worked themselves into positions of authority and influence, and they're now teaching a gospel that is a false gospel, and therefore it's not a gospel at all. It's not good news. And it's taking the church away from their core And the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ and his life and his ministry, his death and his resurrection. And so he's warning them not to follow the ways of these teachers. And in a wild sort of roller coaster way, that's what he's doing here in the middle part of this letter. Is he's making a case, a very detailed case against these teachers. And he's saying, here's what their lives look like. Here's where their path is headed and don't go down it don't have anything to do with what they're leading you towards. And so in verse 4, he says, certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago, they've secretly slipped among you. They're ungodly people. They pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. And we're reminded of the teachings of Jesus in Matthew 7. It says, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing But inwardly, they are ferocious wolves and by their fruit, you will recognize them. And that's what Jude does. He doesn't focus on the details of their doctrine and their teaching, although he alludes to it. His main focus is on their character and their lifestyle. And he says, therefore, by their fruit, you recognize you should recognize that they are false teachers through the way they live their life and their attitudes and their behaviors. He focuses on two sins in particular, that of sexual immorality and the allure of money or power influence. These are two of the great perennial sins that humans struggle with. And so we'll comment on them briefly this morning. So this letter quotes generously from the Old Testament and other uh, sources as well that would have been familiar to his audience. We believe that his audience was primarily Jewish christians so they had been raised in the faith they knew the old testament and therefore he peppers in all of these examples from the old testament assuming that his audience would have been familiar with these and therefore he doesn't have to go into great detail and so in a short amount of space jude offers us six examples and six metaphors that i'm going to try to take us through quickly this morning The first set of Old Testament references highlights scenarios where unbelief leads to rebellion and moral corruption. And all of this demands that God must bring judgment and correction to his people. And so he begins by saying that we need to remember the past. We need to learn from the history of God's people. His first example is the unbelief of the people of Israel. When they're released from bondage and God takes them out, we, they begin to, you know, complain and grumble, and ultimately they turn to idolatry, and they turn away from belief in God. And unbelief is at the heart, really, of all of our sin, in one way or another. Unbelief led an entire generation of God's people to miss the promised land, to miss God's best. And we should also today not doubt the power of God and miss God's best for us. We need to remember the danger of unbelief. Unbelief is, is the, the foundation of corruption and the decay of our faith. And in many ways, it's the way people approach the Bible. They'll say, well, I'll believe the Bible when I can figure it out, when it makes sense to me, and when I understand it all. And so they're beginning with a skeptical, unbelieving approach. And then you'll never get there if that's your foundation. You have to believe in God, you have to believe in His Word, and this say, okay, if there's something there that I'm struggling with, something there that I'm not understanding God's word, it's on my end. It's because I can't understand it. Or it doesn't make sense to me. But how dare we think that, that God and His ways should always make sense to us? They don't. We're finite people. We're limited. We don't know what God knows. So to begin with, a foundation of unbelief leads us astray. And then he goes on from there to give us a second example. God's judgment on the fallen angels for rebellion. Now it's difficult to know the exact circumstances that he has in mind, the exact context. Um, In fact, scholars aren't even sure exactly where this reference is being quoted from. It may even be coming from, from sources outside of Scripture. The bottom line is the Bible doesn't tell us a whole lot about the fallen angels. So we call demons, right? We have good angels and bad angels. And there's only a few, and they're very cryptic in the Bible, but we understand very little, at least we know, that at some point in time there was some kind of rebellion in heaven where Satan, Lucifer, right, the devil, led a rebellion, and a certain percentage of the angels left and joined in that rebellion. And they became what we know as demons. And Jude is referencing them generally as a group of people to say, remember the past, don't fall into the sin that would kind of happen before the world even began, which is to rebel against God. Unbelief, right? It's based on unbelief, not trusting in God. Don't be like these demons who turned away in unbelief. And then the third general example he gives to us is God's judgment of cities, a group of cities for their rampant immorality. And by some counts, this part of the narrative is referenced 20 times in the Bible. The story of Sodom and Gomorrah becomes a very kind of quintessential example of of a group of people receiving the judgment of God because of their immorality. Now, at the center of that was their sexual immorality, but that wasn't the only corrupt part of their city. The city was known as a place of great arrogance. They were known for um, not taking care of the poor. It was a place of injustice. And so... Sexual sin was at was at the heart of it. And the way the narrative is told, it was central to their sin and rebellion against God. But it wasn't singled out as the only sin. And so I think today um, we can single out sexual immorality or particular versions of it to make them worse as worse sins. No, it's sin. And we're clear on that. But but all sin is sin and, and takes us away from God But Jude, in making this reference, he is clear that that his letter lines up with the rest of the New Testament sexual ethic, that is that sexual activity outside of covenant marriage between one man and one woman is defined by Scripture as sin. And it's part of of, uh, the bigger picture of rebellion against God and his good plans and purposes. The New Testament confirms what the Old Testament teaches on this. Now, all three of these examples, right, unbelief, rebellion, immorality of various kinds, they're all painting a picture of us, of, for us, of the human experiment to define oneself from within oneself, right? It's, it's the life where I'm in control and I can do whatever I want and I get to decide what is right for me, right? And this is the myth. This is the lie of the false teachers, They've said, you know what, God is gracious and God is good and he is merciful. And so, you know, God doesn't actually care how you live your life. You can live however you want and everything's going to be okay in the end. That was the spirit of these false teachers. So they they weren't teaching an outright rejection of God. In fact, some of their teaching, some of their doctrine was actually right. It was accurate. But they were teaching people that they didn't have to surrender their lives to the lordship of Jesus Christ to surrender themselves and place themselves under the authority of God's word and how it says we should live our lives. When we remove God from the center of life, we implode. That's the story of human history. We want to learn from that, learn from those who've rejected God in the past, observe where this path leads, and run to the mercy of God. And so just as Jude reminded the church of these three examples from the Old Testament, He seeks to show us that these false teachers in their time are just as deserving of God's judgment. They're doing the same thing that God's people did in the past. And at the center of this cycle of unbelief and rebellion and immoral behavior is one core central issue in verse 8. He says in the very same way, on the strength of their dreams... These ungodly people pollute their own bodies. They reject authority and heap abuse on celestial beings. Their behavior is based on their dreams, their plans, their desires for their life. And so they're basically encouraging people, you know what? Just, just reject this whole idea that God has, has a path and a plan for you and just live your own way. That's what their behavior is based on. And that's the core issue of the heart. So he adds to this three more examples in verse 11. And his idea here is that he wants us to pay attention to leadership. He gives three examples of rebellious people who went on to corrupt others. And he's saying these false teachers in the church today, they are like these people. They're leading you astray. So it gives the example of Cain, of Balaam, and of Korah. So Cain is a classic case of lack of faith and trust in God. He had an unrepentant heart. His anger eventually matured and resulted in murder. He would go on to establish a city and a people who were known for violence. He would pass along this heritage of anger and violence to more people. He was a leader who led people astray. Balaam is an example of how the lust for money can lead to deception. His error was of being a profiteering preacher. We have an example of those in our world today. It's a great temptation to use the platform to benefit oneself rather than doing what is best for God's people, to teach messages that are only popular and positive in order to gain influence, to gain support for the ministry, but fail to talk about hard topics and challenge people towards faithfulness and to turn away from sin. And then Korah's rebellion in number 16 tells the story of a Levite named Korah who rejected the God-ordained leadership of Moses and Aaron. It's an example of how a lust for power or influence can lead to rebellion. So three examples of failed leadership. In verses 12 and 13, it's a really interesting section. He offers six different images or metaphors to characterize the lifestyle and the leadership of these false teachers. First, he says they're like hidden reefs or like, a, like an underwater iceberg would be the similar idea. And that when you run across them, the whole of the ship or like the foundation of your life can become damaged, and you may not even realize it, can result in a slow leak, but eventually cause you to become shipwrecked. He says these leaders are like hidden reefs. You can't see them, but they're there under the water, and they present to you a danger to your lives. He says they're like selfish shepherds, almost certainly a reference to Ezekiel 34, where God pronounces judgment on the shepherds of Israel, their spiritual leaders. He says, woe to you who only take care of yourselves. Should you shepherds not take care of the flock? Again, we can think of modern day examples of those in leadership who have led their flock astray because of their selfish behavior and attitudes. He says they're like rainless clouds. A cloud that doesn't deliver what it's supposed to. Rain for the land doesn't bring the nourishment They've lost their purpose. They're rainless clouds. They're like dead trees. They're fruitless. They're rootless. There's a lot of promise, but they don't deliver. They're blown over like a house not built on a solid foundation. He says they're like wild waves chopping up the sea. And then I love the image here. He says wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame. You guys know what sea foam is, right? It's... Result of water and wind it chopping up the sediment, the particles in there, and it creates this kind of foam. And if you, if there's just a little bit of it, it's kind of pretty. It creates this kind of glistening effect on the, on the, the sand. But large amounts of sea foam. There are places where the sea just churns up this foam, and it's really kind of gross. Uh, and it, there's no point to it. There's no purpose. It's just, just this fluffy. Kind of gross stuff that piles up. So he's saying these false teachers, they're, they're like the waves and the wind and they're churning up all this stuff, but it's just resulting in this messy fluff. There's no substance. Finally, he says they're like wandering stars, or what we might call a shooting star. They create light. It seems beautiful, but it's gone quickly. It's just there it goes. Shooting star. You missed it. Oh, did you guys see that? Oh, you missed it. I'm sorry. Don't you love that? It's like the people, hey, did you see the uh, you know eclipse or like the thing in the planets that doesn't happen every 300 years? Yeah, it was last night. It's like, oh, thanks. You missed it. And these leaders, they have a fleeting characteristic to their lives and leadership. A lot of action, a lot of performance, a lot of pop. There's nothing of substance. So how do we synthesize the message and the warning here? How do we take all of these examples that he pulls from the old testament and all these other places how do we pull this together and make sense of what jude is saying to us i think the heart of his message and his warning is that these false teachers are practicing and promoting a self-centered life that's at the heart of the issue it's a self-centered life and this is where he brings the body of the letter to a conclusion in verse 16 He says, these people are grumblers and fault finders. They follow their own evil desires. They boast about themselves and flatter others for their own advantage. They're self-centered, self-promoting, self-focused. And this is not the way of Jesus. So Jude does not want the church to follow these people. As I think about the themes that kind of keep coming back in this letter and in the examples that he gives, I put together this sort of pyramid because I was trying to figure out how do we create some kind of synthesized idea? And so I thought of the idea of pyramid because at the foundation of the self-centered life is idolatry. It's a word that's never used in the book, but it's assumed. It's in every book of the Bible. Idolatry is the, the underlying issue. We were created to love God with all that we are, with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And whenever we don't do that, we turn to something else and that thing or things is an idol. It's the foundation of a sinful, self-centered life. And idolatry then causes unbelief because if I'm not loving God with my whole heart and I'm not devoted to trusting in him. I begin to question God and his character or his power or his motives or his ability. And when I question God, that results in unbelief. And then unbelief gives seed to pride. Because if I can't totally trust in God, then where else do I have to turn? Myself. And so we turn inward toward pride. And we lift up ourselves and we think, you know what, I've got this figured out. I have good ideas. I can't trust anybody else. I'll only trust myself. And this pride, then if we turn in towards self, means that we're turning away from God and results in rebellion. And rebellion, then the seed of that is immorality. We just live life however we want everyone does what was right in their own eyes but here's the question how's that working for us how's it working for you to live life the way you think you should live and that's what these teachers are saying they're saying look just trust yourself trust your own instincts just live however you want don't worry about don't worry about god don't worry about reference don't worry about judgment But we know. We know better than that, don't we? Have we learned anything from history? Have we learned anything from the history of our own lives? That is not to trust ourselves. And this whole project of of self-defining self with self doesn't work. It doesn't work. Choose your own path in life. You get to define how you're supposed to be and how you're supposed to live your life. It's a lie. It's a myth. It's a false gospel. Hey, that, that's the good news. Live however you want. That's true freedom. No, it's not. No, it's not. And Jesus saying, don't buy the lie that these false teachers want you to believe. And the reason is they want you to be able to live however you want because they want to live however they want. And actually they don't care about you at all. They're selfish shepherds. They're just about promoting their own glory. So what's the solution? The opposite of the self-centered life is, of course, the God-centered life. And the foundation of that is love and worship and devotion. Loving God, surrendering to His plan, surrendering to His purposes, being devoting ourselves to loving Him and worshiping Him, and that He is at the center of our lives. And that results then in faith. We have trust. If we love God, we're devoted to God, we're in communion and fellowship with God, we will believe what He says even when it's hard. We'll have faith and trust, and then that results in the opposite of pride. It results in humility, of accepting our limitations, of humbling ourselves before God's lordship, his leadership, his influence, his authority in our lives, and then humble people will then, will then serve. Rather than rebel and live for themselves, we'll serve. We'll serve others. We'll serve God. And the, the conclusion of that, the peak of that pyramid is, is good fruit. It's a life well lived. It's becoming the people God created us to be. It's the God-centered life. And so the question is, will we reject the narrative that leads us away from the God-centered life? And will we live, continue to live the failed human experiment of the self-centered life? Or will we embrace, by God's grace, this God-centered way of life? And so my... Sort of closing challenge to you is, is posing the question, then why do we listen to false teaching? Why are, we, why are we led astray by this and by these false teachers? Because we're all vulnerable to this in every generation. And I think this is at least part of the answer. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but will have itching ears or having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. We listen to false teaching and false teachers because we like what they're saying. Because somehow it sounds sounds good to us. It sounds enticing. It sounds like true freedom. There's something within our corrupt humanity that is attracted to that because we think it will give us satisfaction. It will be the source of joy. And the danger of the time that we're living now is, is that we... We can now kind of curate our own newsfeed. We can create this sort of echo chamber where we only listen to people that we already agree with because if we don't like something, we just unsubscribe from it or unlike it or unfollow it. And we get to sort of create this environment where we're only hearing and listening to the sources that are affirming what we already believe to be true. This is a dangerous thing. We need to listen to God's word, which will challenge us. And there's things that we hear in church, or there's things that we read in scripture and we're like, yeah, that's really good. And there's things that we read and we're like, oh, I don't know if I like that. Well, that's hard. Yeah. We read about God's judgment and we say, that's hard. Yeah. But it's there. We have to wrestle with it. We have to know that even God's judgment is a grace to us. The fact that God doesn't just leave us and expect us to figure it out. God's judgment is hard. It's hard to read about that. It's hard to read those stories. but We want to learn from the past. We want to know and trust that even in that, that God is just and he is good and he has a good plan for our lives and for our world. The danger is that we'll only listen to those who are already affirming what we already believe. We're only affirming things that sound good or enticing or good in the moment that don't challenge us. What we really need is we need God's word. And we need truth to challenge us, to place us under authority, to shape us into an identity which has been decided for us in advance. And that identity is that we're created to be people who are transformed in the image and likeness of Jesus Christ. It is actually a grace and a gift to us that we don't create our own identity or path in this world. It is given to us. And we're told to submit to that and to live into that. And that takes humility, and it takes grace, but that's the project that we want to do together. We want to become those kinds of people. And so the warning of Jude is not to turn to the left or to the right, not to be lured away, but to keep coming back to God's Word and allow us to refine us and to shape us, to know our own history, to know the history of God's people, so that we can learn from those mistakes. And we can become transformed people who are more like Jesus. We pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for its authority in our lives. We also admit that it challenges us. There are parts we don't understand. There's parts that we wish were not in there. There are many parts that we struggle with. But God, we want to believe, and we want to have faith, and we want to trust in you, and we want your word to refine us, not just to affirm what we're already doing. We want to become new people. Because when we're honest with ourselves and with others, we acknowledge we're not the people that we want to be yet. So we thank you for the trajectory of growth and of change and of transformation. God, would you help us to joyfully embrace that change, to become your people, so that we can embrace your true gospel and we can share that with everyone around us. Father, we love you and we give you praise. In Jesus' name, amen.